Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, well, if you thought it couldn't get more crazy, well, it just did. The continued government shutdown, the continued fight over budgets, the continued fight over Obamacare, and it just gets more and more crazy. This is special coverage of the budget crisis here on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio, broadcasting from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former uh, floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of the National Broadcasting Corporation for Government Affairs. He's the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. What a day. Oh, my gosh. It gets better and better. To my 11 o'clock, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee. The former Obama appointee is General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krupp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, ironically, he is the former Executive Director of the great state of Maryland's Democratic Party. His longtime Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Hello, Justin. Hello, Carl. And we have a special guest today joining us at the roundtable. He is the former member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve Bank. He is the Honorable Mark Olson. Mark, thank you for joining us. This is an honor. Thank you for the invite, Justin, and, and team. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, uh, we're, we're going to have a great talk. First, I want to start off about what happened last week. Uh, for those of you who were uh, tuning in last week, uh, ran into a little bit of a technical issue. This happens from time to time with a live broadcast from a remote feed. Uh, we worked with Blog Talk Radio very closely and had a good discussion. It seems that we rectified some of the technical issues. We apologize for that. As a result, during our 5 o'clock hour, we are going to be rebroadcasting a, a, an exclusive interview with the Dean of the House representing Michigan's 12th Congressional District. He is the Honorable John Dingle. We're going to be playing for that for you and the 5 o'clock hour and talking about it at the 5.30 segment. But the big news going around Washington today is the budget crisis. It is the talk of the CR. It is the talk of the debt ceiling increase. It is just a total quagmire here in Washington, D.C. Uh, the latest right now is, as of this morning, the GOP had conferred. They had gotten a possible deal together. That deal would include a six-month extension to the debt limit. It would include a, a little bit of flexibility in the federal agencies in dealing with sequestration budget issues. It would put a continuing resolution in place for six months. That would, in effect, open up government again. And it also includes a uh, reduction or a removal of the tax on medical devices, as is called out in the uh, Affordable Care Act. As a result, 
we've got this situation. The latest, before it even hit the street, before Speaker Boehner can even present this to the public, the White House issued a statement today saying that that plan is dead on arrival. They are not going to continue to be held hostage over Obamacare. Now the Senate's back in play, and they're meeting today. It has gotten more and more confusing. You know, uh, Mark Olson, I've got to ask you a question. You served on the, as, as a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve Bank. Obviously, you were very thick into economic policy and how the policies coming out of Congress ultimately affect how our economy grows or dwindles, as the case may be. In your years of being around government, either as a congressional staffer or as a member of the Board of Governors, have you seen it this bad or anything like this before? I have not seen it this bad, Justin. And I think that the, that the operative word here with respect to the economy is uncertainty. Uh, when you have uncertainty, that means that there's a significant shutdown that occurs throughout the economy. Uh, 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 consumers don't, don't spend, uh, corporations don't invest, you can't make long-term plans, and, and there's, a, there's an old economic axiom. You can measure risk, but you can measure un uncertainty. If we get on track, if we can see what sort of an economic environment we're in, what the paradigm is in, then we can make plans. But in an uncertain world, you can't. But, uh, Mark, when... When we talk about the government shutdowns, I mean, this is obviously not the first government shutdown we've had before. Uh, the last one being in 1996 when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House leading that revolution, and you had President Clinton in the White House. Uh, but even then, with the splits in the Republican Democrats then, that only went a week. It wasn't as, or the economy, it seems, wasn't as fragile back then. Was it smart to put or play Russian roulette with the economy like they are right now on an economy that's still fragile. Well, the, the key here is that this is a crisis that Congress created for itself. And that's, that's what I think it makes it particularly insidious. It wasn't an exogenous event, an event from the outside that came in and impacted the economy. We used the debt ceiling, which is a phony issue anyway, to bring about a crisis. And that, that, that crisis has had implications not simply in the U.S. but around the world. It impacts the relationship, for example, of the dollar to the other currencies worldwide, which has huge impacts on, on international trade. But, when, but the, the reality still dictates, though, that the economy today is different even from back during the 79 shutdown, even back during the 96 shutdown. It's a more intertwined glo global economy. Does that make a debt ceiling... Uh, a debt ceiling shutdown that much more impactful, not only in the American economy, it, it, but globally? It, 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 it exacerbates an existing situation when you don't have a budget and haven't had one for a long time, when you haven't had a tax bill and can't get a tax bill on the table, and, and you've got the looming issues of, of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security that, that, we, that we can't even begin to address. Uh, yes, it, it, it is a very, much more serious situation. Bob Hines. I've got a question for the uh, governor. Um, Mark, obviously it looks like we're not going to get a solution by tomorrow night, which would be midnight, then that's the, that's the witching hour for the debt ceiling. Now, my question would be, over, let's, go, let's could you look forward, let's say a month, 
and in that month while we're trying to solve this problem, if, or maybe we'll maybe it'll be quicker, but during the time that we are in default technically, what happens? Is there a rolling certain series of way things happen over a few weeks, or how would it develop? Well, you've got you, 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 at a macro level, you've got the question of global liquidity. And you've got you've got questions of what happens if the government shuts down. So you've got central banks around the country, uh, around the world, uh, putting together swap lines so that they can deal with some of the liquidity issues. Uh, that backup authority, and they're very good at that. The central banks uh, of the world know how to do that. I'll, I, my own personal belief: let's work backward from November one, the day that the Social Security checks go out. If Social Security checks don't go out, there better be food tasters in both the House and the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because there is really going to be a there, that is that to me is 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 the drop dead date for, for for anything like that. I don't think any member of the House and Senate would want to go through that. But but Mark, when looking at it from a central bank issue, I mean several central banks have already come in, particularly in Europe, urging uh, Congress to keep level heads in dealing with this. Christine Lagarde, head of the World Bank, has come back and said that we've got a situation that not only affects America, affects the economy globally. This is irresponsible. Do you agree with Christine Lagarde? It absolutely is. is. And think about our credibility. You know, we look at the Euro countries, and we, and we, and we see the need from afar of the Euro countries exercising some discipline among the countries, it's much easier in the U.S. when we have 50 states. Uh, in, in, in the Euro countries where they have to exercise some discipline in places like Greece and Portugal, uh, Spain uh, and, and Italy, and, and we are calling for them to exercise some discipline, and, and we can't even deal with ourselves. But, yes, it does. But as we've seen in, like, let's say Great Britain, David Cameron, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, in, empowered very strict austerity measures. He's taken a lot of political hits on this and is in the, and is in the throes of keeping his coalition government together. Do you think that, the, that, that Congress and the White House are looking at that saying, look, austerity is fine, but... You know, this is going to be a political dodge. I am still waiting to see really strong evidence of leadership on a, in, in either party, and and I think we are seeing some. We talked about it earlier in the pre-show about uh, about uh, seeing some leadership come out of the moderate moderates on both Republican and Democrat side uh, in, in the in the Senate. But there's there's a real there's a real leadership void. I feel sorry for John Boehner because I think he is the one that has has the greatest difficulty pulling pulling them together. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a second because I, I would love to get your take on on a subject that we have talked about numerous times here on this show, and that is Simpson Bowles, the Simpson Bowles plan. This is a plan that was released maybe a year and a half, almost two years ago now, had some great ideas. It seemed to have bipartisan embracement, but yet it, it still eludes us. We have not been able to enact that plan as part of a fiscal crisis solution. What is your take on Erskine Bowles' and we do, plan? And as you recall, there are, there are a couple of variations on that that are real close to it also. Alice Rivlin, I know, worked on one, and I can't remember uh, who else. But, the, but there, was, there was some very thoughtful work. But, but Erskine Bowles um, and, and, and Alan Simpson, I thought, I thought did a yoke person uh, a job in, in putting that uh, together. But, but I think it reflects the fact that there really isn't a consensus in the country. 
uh, the on that, we really we really have not been able to come up with with a national consensus for uh, for dealing with the debt. My last two years, and I was in the Fed board, I said I'm going to make I'm going to make the debt a subject of, of talks that I give around the country. And, I, and I, I did two of them, and I realized that what I should be doing is that, those, that I, was, I was putting people to sleep, uh, talking to them. There simply isn't a constituency out there that'll, that, that comes to Washington demanding a, a balanced budget. And as a result, as a result you remember, we, we, we re-elect every member of the House, or we elect every member of the House, every two years and a third of the Senate, we didn't design the Congress to be forward thinking. So we're asking them to deal, deal with forward thinking issues in an environment that they're not good at. Is this a matter that we are in fact dealing with an uninformed or a less informed Congress and what we may have done maybe 20 years ago? I don't think ago? there's any question about that. I, it, it, I don't think there's any question it's less informed, but, it, but even more so, it's far more partisan. And I think, I think therefore, uh, far less responsive to the electorate. Well, we've got a call right now. Caller, you're on from the 703 area code. Uh, this is Alan Moore. Alan! Oh, thanks for joining us. Didn't know you were calling in. Thanks for being with us. Alan, uh, th thanks for being. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, joining us as he does every Tuesday, even remotely. He is the uh, longtime Senate staffer. He's a former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under the last, four, at last count four presidents. He is uh, very distinguished and uh, gentle fellow from the Simpson Center. He is Alan Moore. Alan, you have a question uh, for uh, for the governor. You know, I'm, first of all, I'm I'm here to to uh, to, to participate, um, uh, but but I'm re I'm reflecting on what has been said so far, and you know, as we have said before, the situation now is worse than what any of us have seen in our lives, but not that much worse, meaning we have had some shutdowns. We have had Congresses that, that, that didn't respond, that couldn't get it together, that run up to the 11th hour and 59th minute and come through with something. Uh, it seems to me, even though I'm in California and a, a little bit removed from, uh, from that beltway intensity of uh, all news all the time, all debt limit, all continuing resolution, that we're actually fairly close to kicking the can down the road about three months. I think three months is what they're mostly talking about, uh, mid-January on the spending and maybe a couple of extra weeks on the debt limit. Uh, both the Senate and the House uh, kind of are working around that notion. But the, the point would be, um, make very few changes on the spending side, which keeps the pressure of the sequester going. Um, just give a few months on the debt limit so we still have that hanging over our heads, all with the idea of coming together in between with some mechanism that will make some of the harder long-term decisions that most people recognize have to be done. That's at the heart of the Simpson Bowles, the heart of the Rivlin uh, Domenici that, uh, that the governor mentioned, um, making this, the, the, the changes to the big, big spending programs um, over a longer period of years that will help 
uh, hopefully bring the economy closer or the budget closer to 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 balance and allow us to get rid of the the sequester and the arbitrariness on spending that's there me to to get this deal though the the republicans in the house are still insisting on a few little tidbits and that's really all they are um something to kind of save face uh on, on obamacare or on health care for members of congress stuffed in in the great great large picture don't matter much but in the political world of washington can take on an oversized importance so right. I, i'm kind of optimistic that a deal will come together in the next uh, 24, 36 hours, um, but we're not there yet. And we're in one of these things where we seem to have to wait till the last hour. And right. we've still got a few before we get right. there. But, but Governor Olson, uh, Alan brings up a good point when we talk about the issue of the sequester. First of all, I would love your take on, do you feel that the sequester was effective? It, 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 the sequester worked, uh, and it, it did, in fact, uh, cut down uh, government spending. So from that perspective, it worked. It worked because I think it was a political vehicle that allowed people to move forward, but it also had a negative impact on the economy. And, and I, I think that that's undeniable. And, and that's, that's a significant difference right now with where we have been in other times, too, where in, I would say, for the last five years or so, uh, we have done almost everything we could to stimulate the economy, QE1, 2, and 3. And in the last couple of years, now the last, the last uh, nine months, I guess you could say, uh, what we've done is, is quite the opposite. We've, we've looked for ways to restrict the economy. But it, that, but, that's had an overall impact. But it also seems, though, when, when Alan talks about kicking the can down the road, this can has been kicked almost to death. There's no more, there's no more road to kick it down, and there's no more can to kick anymore. What are the alternatives? I mean, is there is there a way for us, or that you foresee, breaking through some of the partisanship? Well, I think, uh, I, I think uh, we we have right now something we have going for us, but it is at risk. Is the U.S. economy vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world's economy? Right, and and that translates through the strength in, in or the security of the dollar as sort of a currency of last resort. If, if that ever starts to waver, I think that that will be a real crisis, and that real crisis may bring about some, some sort but, of thinking. But we've, we've already heard several countries, including China even, talking about the possibility of looking outside of the dollar being the benchmark and going to other commodities almost, whether it be oil, gold, silver, as, as, as a possible benchmark for their commodity. Any, any prudent economy uh, would look at alternatives. You have to look at alternatives, just as we have looked at alternatives uh, when we've looked at the, at the way we would even, even uh, manage, the, manage the economy. You may remember there was a time not long ago uh, where it looked like uh, the, the amount of government debt would be reduced, and the Fed was going to say, if, there's, if the government debt is reduced, uh, what are the tools we're going to use to manage the money supply? Any prudent economy has to look at that. But there is no currency that has the consistency and the depth that, that the U.S. dollar does. So a country like China really does not have an option. Where would they go? The euro? Correct. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Denise Krupp. 
my problem with all of this right now is, is we're talking at the 30,000 foot level. We're not talking about people who are trying to figure out how to spend what remaining cash they do have. Um, we've been shut down for two weeks, which means that people are looking at bills and they're trying to decide, am I going to pay for my insurance, am I going to pay for my rent, or am I going to pay for food? Or maybe I'll try to pay for something else, because you're, not, you're certainly not going to be paying for shoes, you're not paying for clothes, you're not paying for restaurants which means that all of those folks who do all of those things are taking a hit, too. So you got that. Now, if we start and we, you know, we, some random bill gets passed in the next 24 hours and we punt this through December 15th, not only have we, you know, punted to oh, two weeks before Christmas, but now you're going to be putting people in the position of saying, so do I pay for my rent? Do I pay for my insurance? And what do we do about Christmas presents? I, I mean, I'm a mother of two kids, and if I was put in that position, my response would be, sweetie, I love you dearly. We'll talk about Christmas in January because I have to make sure that you are fed. But Denise, the argument's coming out, the fact that what the population you're talking about is such a minuscule part of the population. You're talking about 800,000 people versus the rest. No, I'm not, Justin. And the reason I'm saying I'm not talking about 800,000 is because 800,000 may be the people that are furloughed, but that's not the folks that are actually impacted. Not only are you having people you know, paying, being paid by the government, but everybody's associated with the government. I've got a good friend of mine who's dipping into her personal savings right now to pay for her payroll because people aren't buying her product. They're not buying her product because they don't have expendable cash. They don't have expendable cash because they're either A, furloughed, or B, their family member is furloughed, so nobody is spending money. So that's happening now and we're in October. We pushed this little nonsense game to December. We're wrecking, I mean wrecking the retail industry. We are wrecking you know, holidays. We're wrecking lives here. This this isn't a game anymore, folks. We're wrecking lives. Bob Hines. I agree with exact. I agree with what uh, Denise is saying. I mean, it's very, very uh, obvious that there, the the retail business is going to be slower this year than it has been in the past. If this goes on, let's say closer to let's say the, which I, I agree with the with the commissioner, November one is the date that when they have the, the government's got to have seventy billion dollars in their checkbook to write the checks for Social Security. Seventy billion dollars. Right now, I think they've got a couple hundred million, right? Fifty million dollars or something. Give or take, perhaps, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> a small yeah, cash. Yeah. Yeah. But the reality is. They've only, we've only got a few weeks to get this thing behind us, and I don't know that we're going to get there. And, Bob, it's not just folks when you're talking about Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Look at all those veterans who aren't getting their benefits right now. I mean, when you have the American Legion, when you have the VFWs, when you have all the veterans groups protesting in front of the, what, the uh, World War II Memorial today because their folks aren't getting paid, there are a lot of folks out there, including a close friend of mine who lost two legs via an IED in Iraq, and he's living off his VA benefits. If he can't get his VA benefits, what are we going to tell him to do? Go homeless? Because that's essentially what our government's telling well, him to do. I mean, in a grander scale, talking about the economy, uh, Governor Olson, when we do talk about the uh, a, a debt ceiling shutdown, we're also talking about the effects of it on the Federal Reserve Bank, on the central bank. You're talking about interest rates are probably going to have to be jacked up to record levels. Uh, these are some very tough decisions that the current Board of Governors is having to look at. What are the possibilities that the Fed's, or what are some of the actions that the Fed's going to have to take should they decide and not come up with a deal regarding the Fed? If, if, my, memory, if my memory serves, and I may be wrong, I think that the last time we were, we were close to a default, uh, there was something like a 60 basis point increase in uh, in, in in the price of 
of, uh, of, of government securities. And that's, that, that stayed there for a significant period of time, so it was embedded. I don't know what that translates into, but, but I know this, that, that that amounted to a tax on the, on the economy. It, it, it simply did. That, that unlike, undoubtedly will happen again, because if there's, if there's any question about, about the, the uh, credibility and the integrity of, of, of U.S. debt, the, the, the price will go up. The value will drop. Alan, more thoughts? Yeah, it, it, I was struck by the, the kind of the combination of what Denise was talking about, which was real impact on real people today, and, and what, what Mark had reminded us earlier of what uncertainty does to individual behavior. And, and, it's, and it's negative. It makes individuals very cautious. So if you think about the people being furloughed, um, which that number has actually declined because some people have gone back to work, but, but the people who rely on government workers, the easiest example being a restaurant near a facility that gets cluster, shut down, um, the, the, the impact is much greater, as Denise pointed out. But as long as we, we, we can project that into a, to a, a larger percentage of the population when, when we are in a period of extended uncertainty and people get nervous, they have their job, they have their paycheck, they're able to, to manage, but they are wondering what is coming next, so they get ultra-cautious. We've seen a very, very cautious consumer in America since 2007 and 2008, um, people saving instead of spending, people spent paying down their credit um, rather than taking on new credit, um, and and the negative impact that has on our hopes for uh, for recovery. Well, if you think about what individual what happens to individuals who are laid off, etc., and think about nervousness and hesitation and caution going forward, whether it's for three months or four months or six months, um, you have very significant um, impacts over the longer term on an already nervous and cautious population. Having said that, it's not as though if we simply said pass a clean CR for a year, pass a, a clean debt limit for a year, and then say, well, we got that done, now let's go home. We still have this overhanging problem of spending $3 and raising $2 in revenue of new um, federal deficits every year of six to $700 billion. That's the amount of money we need to borrow just to, to, to continue to function. That's why the debt ceiling has been hit and why that whole issue is a problem. We are continuing to spend a lot more than we're taking in in, in revenue and somewhere, somehow, um, you have to pay the piper for that, usually in terms of higher inflation. Uh, that's, of course, what Fed has been wrestling with and trying to find this balance, this proper balance between um, uh, deficit spending and stimulation. Yes, we, we spent a lot of money to stimulate the economy. It helped some. Then we, then we, we turned very uh, aggressively in another direction of trying to save money, 
almost certainly at the wrong time. Uh, but timing is, is tough, and different different uh, politicians and different people have very different opinions about the the right answer here. And that was part of of what we're dealing with now. One of the reasons we have this huge divide in America is people were furious at what happened to them personally in 2007 and 2008, and we're paying the piper for that. And, um, and, Alan, and, and Alan, real quickly, we're, we're just catching uh, breaking news coming out of CNN right now. It looks like that uh, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and uh, some of the Democratic uh, minority leadership uh, are outside the White House. Uh, Steny Hoyer just talked and said point blank that the GOP proposal is quote-unquote very damaging. Uh, it looks like that any thoughts of a deal may still be eluding us at this point. Uh, Alan, is, is this a matter of political chicken at this point? Who's going to blink? You know, they've both blinked some in the last, uh, the last several days. Um, so, and now they're talking about a shorter term than the president wanted, uh, fairly clean, so not quite what he wanted, uh, CR and debt limit. Um, and so the Republicans are saying it's longer than we want, and the president's saying it's shorter than I want, and the, the Republicans are saying it's not dirty enough and the White House is saying it's not clean enough. But, but they are moving towards a middle ground of sorts of a few months um, and with a few little things added in. And so, I, you know, still from the 30,000-foot mark, I see this movement is towards uh, some kind of resolution with with very little time left on the clock. I mean, we... So, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm still guessing that by, by midnight tomorrow, we'll have jerry-rigged some deal together that buys us some more time. And we're talking about kicking the can down the road. There's infinite road, and this is a can that can never be totally destroyed. We can always kick the can down the road. Is it a good idea to do that? Different question. But this is a can that no matter how beat up and dented and so on can always be kicked down this infinite road. Alan, if I would love to be inhaling the oxygen that you are right now out in California. I just don't see any indication right now this deal gets done by midnight tomorrow night. I would love some of that oxygen. Well, just remember, just remember, in terms of kicking cans down the road, they can kick it down for a week. They can kick it down for three days. They they have they have a lot of different little moves that are different from what the Treasury can do to to manage uh, the deficit. You know, we it was two weeks ago around that table that I was suggesting that the groups were going to meld the debt limit and the CR and kick it some distance down the road, well short of a year, I thought it might be as little as four to six weeks, put pressure on this, uh, the, the budget resolution process, create a reconciliation mechanism to modify the sequester and make some entitlement changes. That's what they're doing. They still have all sorts of flexibility. I just think that when we get to tomorrow night, if they haven't got a deal, they'll buy themselves a day. 
go by themselves two days. Well, um, by just uh, Alan, real quickly, we got to go to break. We're going to continue the discussion when we come back. Uh, we're going to talk about this and the Secret to Tia Coast meeting that happened yesterday, as well as how impactful is Obamacare on the economy. We're going to come back with special guest, former Fed Governor uh, Mark Olson. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, this is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio, and joining us, continuing this segment, is special guest, former Fed Governor Mark Olson. Bob, let's go to you. You had a question. Yeah, I, well, it's more than a question. Uh, you know, we're talking here about, you know, are we going to close down the government, et cetera. 
I don't think anybody thinks we're really going to have a, a long-term close down. And, but the problem is that we are not dealing with the basic problems that this government has. Number one, we, we touched on it, we don't, our tax dollars do not cover the, the things we're buying, so we have a deficit. It's going up. It's going to continue. Right now, I don't know, I think someplace around 19% or so of the, of, the, uh, of the economy is taxes that go to the government over a long period of time, and I think now we're someplace closer to 17. We're a little bit low there. Seems to me we probably have to find a way to get some more revenues, number one. Number two, we also have to fix the, 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 the structure of the entitlements we have, which we keep dodging. We don't want to touch. Everybody says it's a terrible idea, and if we spread it out over a number of years, it seems to me nobody is going to have their hand cut off in the way of loss of benefits. It'll be, it'll be a pinky finger. We'll have one little knuckle knocked off. It seems to me the longer we wait, the more knuckles you've got to knock off. And it seems to me both parties are responsible for this problem. Republicans don't want to raise any revenues, but there are a lot of things in the tax code that could be fixed that would raise us billions of dollars. And if we change our entitlement programs so that over the years things are slowly changed, but nobody gets hurt big, but everybody has to be adjusted, I think we could get a long way to solving our problems. We're just unwilling to do it, and the President of the United States and the Democrats and the Congress are the worst offenders. Well, Governor Olson, you know, Bob brings up a good, uh, a good topic. When we talk about, you know, the revenue coming in versus the actual increase in spending that we've had on not discretionary spending, the ability for the government to, to raise revenue has always been a sticking point, particularly over the past 12 to 15 years. One of the subjects we haven't heard talk about, but just in passing, is let's redo the tax revenue system that we have. It's obviously flawed. How much of an impact could streamlining the tax program help in generating revenue for the U.S. government so we can close this gap? Oh, significantly is the answer. You have it. Some of us, are, it doesn't seem like a long time ago to some of us old folks, but 1986, we really did have a, a legitimate a change in the tax code. It was a bipartisan agreement. We eliminated uh, some of the, I think, the disincentives or the misalignment uh, that some of, of the tax structure at the time, and we eliminated a lot of the preferences. Uh, in the intervening years, what we've seen is one by one, we've seen preferences come back in, one at a time, and those could be eliminated, and, and, and those could be eliminated, and I think we could we could make minor adjustments in the tax rate, I, I, and then and then have much better alignment of tax policy and the tax implications. But we we seem to be a ways from that. But but also going off of what Bob was saying, it it it, it seems that the idea of talking about the non-discretionary spending and possibly changing it, streamlining it, alternate or altering it in some capacity is a third rail that nobody in this town wants to touch. Uh, the other problem that we have, the, the benefit and the problem that we have with the federal government, unlike every state in, in America where, where they have to have some correlation between revenue and spending, uh, we, and, we and the federal government do not. Uh, because there is no, we, we have the appropriation process, we have the authorization process, 
and then we have the tax code, and then we have a budget process. So, so, you, so you have four different elements working independently of each other, and it's particularly difficult to get spending uh, and, and tax policy aligned. But I, but I, I would think that the, the, the starting point uh, would be tax policy. I think we could go from there to get some 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 more rationalization on the spending is, is, if is, we had confidence in, in the, in the, that the tax code was fair. Is, is America now at a point where a fair tax rate, flat tax, might be relevant to at least discuss now? It it um, it would it, it it's it should be an important starting point. A flat tax. I think would be a very important starting point, but but it, it, if but remember to do so, uh, you'd probably have to look at the deductibility of of, uh, of, of mortgage interest, and and so the, and, and that that's the third. But that's rail. been a subject. But that's been a subject that nobody brings up as saying, hey, every time that subject's come George, up, everybody pushes back. Even George Bush said we're not going to touch that, so it, so it's made it very difficult. Carl Tubin. Well, there are a few things. Number one, I can't understand. Um, there's a poll that the Wall Street Journal released on the 11th, Friday. And the poll says everything bad about the Republicans in the House. Now, either Mr. Boehner, Mr. McCarthy, and others don't read the Wall Street Journal or don't want to hear this because of their Tea Party segment. And the Tea Party certainly you know, doesn't feel this way. But the the brand they were supposed to rebrand the Republican Party, and they're still stuck in this in the in this morass. And and you know, I agree with you on entitlements. Obama has has reached out, and other people haven't reached back. Okay, <laughs> yeah, but he's reached out. Oh, the other thing. Wait, 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 excuse wait. me. Excuse me. Let me finish. The other thing. Uh, Camp and Balkis have been working on tax reform, but because we're mired in all this other stuff, it doesn't happen. But, but Carl, you can't say that the White House has been necessarily reaching out. If, if anything, they've hunkered down uh, when it's come to the government shutdown, when it's come back. He's the one who came out today before the Republicans even got their proposal on the floor and said this is dead on arrival. Yeah, they hunkered down on, on these two things because they figured we've had enough of this. We shouldn't have to fight about all these other things. And he's also said that we'll be glad to talk about anything you want to talk about once this is finished. And, you know, and meantime, we've got the people that you suggested are having problems. We've got people on food stamps which are going to be having problems. We've got uh, programs for kids uh, that were put in place by Democrats uh, <clears throat> so that kids would be able to get a good breakfast and a good lunch and be able to be more alert in school and do all those other things, which everybody agreed with. And my last point is, and this was uh, probably I missed it, but it, it was over the radio uh, or TV this past weekend or before that on the 21st of January, Canner, Boehner, and others got together and they said, we're going to say no to everything that this president has uh, won.
I, and basically, they have done that. that that's that, Carl. In, in, in all due respect, that, that's hearsay. We we've heard other stuff. I, I think that's a straw man being thrown out. I, I think it would be irresponsible of somebody, particularly the speaker, to say something like that, even in passing in private. In my opinion, they, you know, they did it. They did it uh, in the first term. Maybe got to be two years of the first term when they said no second term for Barack Obama. Well, regardless, Bob, you had a point you want to bring up. Well, just to me, to me, the bottom line is that the and that we have talked about this before. As a matter of fact, our colleague who was away this week, Al Swift, says it about as strongly as anybody. The president has not led. The president has not led, and it is important, no matter who's in the White House. That's the bully pulpit. They set the agenda at the White House, and it's not being done. Only thing that's being done is saying we won't do this, we won't do that. You know, give us this, we won't, we won't talk, we're going to give us what you want. Uh, it's not the way to lead. Now, it's and it's not just the president's fault. The Tea Party people are about as bad a bunch of guys as you can get, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm a Republican. I think they make a fundamental mistake. I mean, the idea that that the president of the United States who has worked very hard to get his health care bill adopted. It's the only piece of legislation that he can point to and say, this is part of my legacy. There's no reason to think he would ever want to defund it. And spending all the time the last two months we have been doing is trying to defund it as a Republican Party. has wasted a whole lot of time, and it's a stupid thing to have done. But that does not change the fact that the president has not led, and that's the fundamental point we have right now with our government. Well, I want to bring this up to uh, Governor Olson real quick. Uh, Mark, when, when we, we hear Obamacare being a critical point in all these discussions, and it seems to have tapered off, the rhetoric regarding Obamacare has kind of tapered off the closer we get to debt ceiling, but even with the, uh, the tax credit on uh, medical devices, it's still a key component of what they're talking about. And my question to you is, it, is Obamacare such a burden on the national economy that they're literally going to hold the debt ceiling, quote-unquote, hostage? I don't think it's clear, frankly, uh, whether it is or not. Now, what is clear is that you, when you expand medical coverage to by 30 million people, it's going to increase the cost. But what, what isn't clear is the extent to which it will help rationalize the, uh, the distribution or the delivery of health care with, with the recipients. That, that's, that, that's one way that you could actually bring down the cost. You, you, if, we look at a, if we look at the cost of health care per individual in the U.S. and compare it with the other developed nations of the world, we're not low. And, and and we're either we're either middle or high relative to the rest of the country. So I think I think that that, that part is unclear. But when you are looking at a significant disruption of of a, of a component of the economy that represents about 20 percent of the entire economy, that that it could be very disruptive. And that that to me is is what is the real unknown. Denise Kraft. I, I mean, from where I'm sitting, I, I think Obamacare is a red herring in this argument. Um, I think you have two very, uh, let me put three at this point, you have the House, you have the Senate, and you have the President all wanting what they want to do. Um, and they're all going to argue what they want to do. And they're looking at each other going, okay, I want somebody to blink. So I'm going to make Obamacare the reason that we're going to get the President to blink. 
Now, I can tell you as a parent of two kids what I would have done at this point in time, or maybe I'll just call them three kids. I would have lost them in a room. And I can't tell you how many folks I'm hearing said the same thing. Put them in the room and say, you're not coming out. You're not coming out. I don't care if you're in the house. I don't care if you're in the Senate. Hell, go to Tortilla Coast and spend the entire time there if you want to do that, gentlemen and ladies. But go into a room. You don't come out until you have a decision because, again, nobody cares whose fault it is right now. It's the economic impact on the average person that is hurting everybody. They're not caring. What they want to know is how can they pay their bills. Isn't that exactly what was done about 20 years ago on the budget deal? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, where they brought, where they brought, remember the, the, the uh, I think the, the members of the conference committee out to the Air Force yeah. Base, right? They brought them to Andrews right. uh, and, uh, and kept them there until they had a deal. Right. I mean, maybe armed Air Police guards in the building might be the way to go. But I, I want to go back to the point here regarding Obamacare. You know, I we talked off the air during the last break. You know, the impact of having. 30 million plus people without coverage now all of a sudden buying into coverage with government subsidies. That's got to be an impact to the national, at least national spending issue, as well as to the economy as a whole. Is that accurate? I, I think that's accurate, but but I think it's I think it's a fundamental disruption of that chain uh, that will at least in the short term have have a very significant impact. There will be either duplications or there will be gaps. I had a good friend, for example, that told me that his. He spent 35 years with an employer, and the employer can now, as a retiree, can drop his health care uh, because of the Obamacare, because he's now eligible in that state uh, for, for the Obamacare. And so his, it has been dropped from him. He's very unhappy with, with the turn of events that was, I think, clearly not anticipated. Uh, Alan Moore, thoughts? Yeah, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't myself see uh, Obamacare as a red herring i see it as a you know as sort of a stand-in for uh the great concern that many americans have about the state of the economy you carl was talking about polls well i saw a poll today that 81 percent of america is dissatisfied with the way things are going in this country now they don't know exactly why and what they would do about it vary all over the place depending upon individual circumstances. Some want to spend more. Some want to tax more. Um, some want to throw the bums out. Um, and uh, we, we've acknowledged in the past that more people blame, uh, rel blame Republicans relatively for what's going on. But people but but if if 70% of the people are mad at republicans for what's going on about 60% are mad at democrats and around 50% throw the throw the president into the into the mix so to getting back to what what bob was saying about about lack of leadership and and look at what leon panetta former secretary of defense former head of cia uh, one time chief of staff in the white house said about president obama's um uh, erratic presence, uh, inconsistent presence on this stuff. Sometimes he's present, and then he disappears. This is not a time anybody can disappear. This is a time where presidents need to lead. So do congressional leaders need to lead. Um, nobody wants to talk about, about taking on the entitlements because that really is the third rail of politics. Uh, to politics. 
And Obamacare is a very interesting surrogate for that. It's unpopular in the country. It was passed solely by Democrats. Um, it has been a horrendous rollout that, they, that, that is an embarrassment to the administration. Um, and, uh, and, in fact, that ought to be the focus of things these days rather than Republicans tilting at windmills trying to, uh, to defund the president's signature program. But the focus of Obamacare from the beginning was how do we get more people covered, not how do we improve coverage, how do we be sure we have enough doctors and medical personnel and so on to deal with new people who will be covered, how do we assure that the 30 million people that we're already referencing here will in fact sign up, and there are big questions about whether that's going to happen, given the, re the really small penalty for not signing up and the ability to come back into the system annually. So Obamacare has got a whole boatload of problems operationally, notwithstanding its general unpopularity with the, the, the public writ large. But so, Alan, Alan, let me, let me just interrupt real quick. Going back to a point you made earlier, are you saying that in lieu of talking about the non-discretionary spending, that the argument of Obamacare intertwines itself with Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and pension benefits? Well, it is, it's definitely caught up, especially in Medicare and Medicaid. We just don't know what the impacts are going to be. I mean, we've got doctors who are retiring now uh, who are being told or who are at the point where they can keep working or not and are being told you're going to get a lower reimbursement rate for Medicare and we want you to computerize all your records, and we're going to increase the number of Medicaid people in many states, and we're going to expect you to cover them. The doctors say, you know something? I'm done. And we don't have enough uh, medical personnel, uh, particularly doctors, in the pipeline uh, to, to, to fill in the gap. We talk about rationing health care. We've been rationing health care, let's face it, for all of our lifetimes. You can't go see any doctor you want. Um, but we're going to have a bigger rationing problem, and this is not what drives the unpopularity of Obamacare. This is what drives some of the uh, the analyst types who say Obamacare has <laughs> got a lot of hidden operational problems that are going to have some negative impacts um, that, that we have to be aware of. Having said that, I will agree with this. I think Obamacare becomes a surrogate for larger frustrations uh, and a way to avoid the big challenges of toying with Social Security, Medicare uh, in particular, that, that, that are on a completely unsustainable path. And, uh, and when you add all of that stuff up, you say, no wonder we're in a mess, and no wonder we can't come to an agreement, but that doesn't mean we're going to default uh, come tomorrow night or, or Thursday or Friday. Uh, go, uh, Governor Olson, you had a thought on that. You just commented well, on Alan's I think thought. It's part of, I think it's part of the disruption that, that we're talking about. When, when, you're, when you're looking at making a fundamental restructuring at the delivery system and, the, and therefore there the cost and reimbursement system and, and the distribution of revenue, the, the, that really does have an – that's an unknowable. And, and as a result, it brings us right back to the element of uncertainty that we talked about But, but we don't talk program. about – what we don't talk about is, you know, the amount of fraud that happens inside Medicare. 
Medicare, Medicaid, well, they're, to the they're, tune they're, of billions of dollars. Uh, and, and that seems to be a discussion that when we talk about non-discretionary spending, the billions we could save based off of enforcing uh, the fraud laws against Medicare, Medicaid, that's got to be part of the discussion, is it not? Well, I'm, it, it's, always, it, it's always been part of the discussion. I'm, I, don't, I don't know the... I'm not that familiar with the details of it. I'm thinking of more of the, as a macro area than okay. I am, but well, than it's a micro area. Right, right, right. Bob Hines. I've always thought that the, the, the Tea Party made a fundamental mistake when they decided that defunding Obamacare was what they should be doing. I always thought the smart thing, if I'd have been a strategist, I think I would have said, look, we know they're going to have a problem putting it together and getting it started because they've been working real hard, but there's been a lot of story and talks. Suddenly, it's been in place, and it is a problem. It strikes me that if I were worried about Obamacare before I tried to attack it, I would have loved to have had a nationwide effort on the part of the Republican Party to discover all the different difficulties that were happening in their districts, their states, back home, and then let that become a public discussion. Because if you see a lot of discussion about serious problems, you're going to be more likely to find problems that the administration is willing to fix. You won't have to defund it. You can maybe fix it. The point is that we, the Tea Party people have done exactly the wrong way to go about winning. The spirit of Ray Bliss just uh, just rose up and applauded you. <laughs> as a fellow Ohioan, strategically, that is exactly the, would have been exactly the right thing. Speaking as a as a as a practical partisan who used to run political campaigns. Yeah. Uh, Denise Krupp. It not only is it going to bite you in the butt, but it really is going to bite you in the butt with what's going on with, with the veterans. And I'm going to keep bringing up the veterans. I mean, when you've got CNN that's got two individuals on today talking about how they're going to lose their benefits, and if they lose their benefits, they're going to be kicked out of their houses, that's going to be huge because the veterans we're talking about here, they're not in New York City. They're not in Washington, D.C. They're in small-town Americana. And when it starts hurting small-town right. Americana, it's when you start hearing from those local members of Congress, they're going to say, hey, wait a second, I really screwed up. Totally And agree. that's what's about to happen. Agreed. Carl Tubin? Uh, a large question. <clears throat> I was reading uh, an article today about uh, George W. and how he uh, saw all this 300 and some million dollars surplus that he gave back to the country, plus the wars, plus other things. How much impact do you think that had uh, on the beginning? And, and of course, it was the, the, the crash. How, how, how much impact did that have on the Obama administration? Well, I, it, it, well, first of all, it had a very it had a very positive impact on the economy in those years. It was very stimulative, but but what we did, but at the same time, what, what happened is, is that the funding of the of the Iraq War just completely blew our budget out. So I, I think there was an extent to which to which the Obama administration inherited uh, a, a, a paradigm where we had not gone back to anywhere anywhere close to a balanced budget and, and a very soft economy, and, and that was part of what they inherited. Uh, okay, with, with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to uh, broadcast an exclusive interview with the Dean of the House, uh, Congressman John Dingell. He's going to talk about his term in Congress, as well as his very, very blunt thoughts on the government shutdown and the House of Representatives. And then we'll comment on that in the back end. So stay with us. In one minute, we're going to have that, uh, that exclusive interview. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes.
You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Joining us for this segment of Backroom Politics, we are honored to have uh, the member of Congress representing Michigan's 12th Congressional District. He is the Chairman Emeritus of the Commerce and Energy Committee. He is the Dean of the House. He is the Honorable uh, John Dingell. Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining us. This is an honor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, uh, Mr. Chairman, you know, I've I got to get the 300-pound gorilla out of the room, and I'm not talking about myself. It, we talking about uh, we're sitting in your office today, the day of the vote on a possible government shutdown. Um, it, it, it almost seems that the economy and the recovery is being held hostage by a possible government shutdown. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Where, where do we go from some place where we're at right now to possibly getting everybody back on track? Well, first of all, we never should have gotten to this place. Second of all, people around here understood how the house should work. We wouldn't be in this mess, and we would have we would have used the committee system, run everything out of the caucus or out of the speaker's office, and so we wouldn't have had this trouble. We would have had a budget, and we would have run according to the rules that they had back in the days of the founding fathers. Because, as you know, the house here has the rules of the British Parliament. If you look at our, at our rule book. It says Jefferson's Manual, which Jefferson wrote from the British Parliament, handed it to the Chamber of uh, Burgesses in Virginia, 
and then re-get it so that he could have, give it to the House of Representatives. It's our, it's our rule books and precedents now. If we'd have heard of that, we wouldn't have this kind of nonsense because they understood how to allow the minority to be heard, allow the majority to work as well, but you use the committee system so that it makes the House work. It gathers the facts, it helps members make the decisions, and it provides for an orderly mechanism for processing all kinds of legislative responsibilities. That includes very specifically the responsibilities of the House of Representatives over budget money, which we have totally disregarded this year and many times previously because of this nonsensical system. Well, Mr. Chairman, when, when, you know, after 58 years, you've seen many changes. You've seen the dynamics of Congress, particularly the House of Representatives, change. I know that in the days when uh, you and uh, Congressman Al Swift were colleagues in the House, there was, a, there was always the ability to compromise. There was always the ability to cross the aisle and make deals and keep government functioning and running efficiently. Now it seems that that's almost a liability. There's no more crossing the aisle, and you're one of the champions of crossing the aisle. You've done that for 58 years. Why have we gotten to that? Partisanship. But interestingly enough, it's not really partisanship. The Republican Party is now in a position where they are at war with each other. And Boehner, has, the speaker, has become largely irrelevant. It's really a shame because he's a good man and a decent legislator. So that's a terrible, that's a terrible shame. And the fact of the matter is, until we get an understanding that compromise is not a dirty word, that cooperation is a good word, and that those are the things the founding fathers intended we should do, we're not going to make this place go. Bob Hines? Mr. Chairman, how do we get back to the way it was, the way it worked? Well, what do we need to do differently? Bob, you and Al remember the days when that was so. Yes. Both were here and very effective participants on the, on the Hill, and, and all three of you gentlemen remember, remember what was important. There was, a, there was a comedy, there was a respect, there was a respect for each other, there was a respect for the system. We had a bunch of people that, that, are, that before they knew where the restrooms were, we're making important speeches, telling us how the government should run, and, and with, with no significant knowledge of how the place should work. And this is, is a calamity for the country. They have no appreciation of the needs of the country. They don't understand the consequences of these shutdowns. And the consequences of the shutdowns are serious. First of all, the country is now in a very fragile condition economically. And, and this was not so the last couple of times we had a shutdown. But we don't have the strength that we had before to come out of this mess unless we begin to work together. So that's one of our major problems. The other thing that we have to do is we have to develop a respect for ourselves in the system and for the country. And to remember that, that, that businesses withholding investment, businesses not making judgments because they don't have the certainty, they can't go out and invest because they don't know what's going to happen. So money is piling up, jobs are not being created, and business is not producing goods and services, and we're becoming increasingly anti-competitive anti and less and less competitive because we don't understand the duty of this body and its members to work together for their common good. 
Mr. Chairman, then, is, is it a matter of uh, one of the great stories that Congressman Al talks about is the, uh, the question of are you here to get reelected or are you here to govern? It, it seems that in today's class of congressmen, the new school members of Congress are so busy trying to get elected and not trying to govern. Is that a problem that you see facing oh, Congress right now? It's a terrible problem. Uh, money is, and the chase for money has become a, a major undertaking in this place. And more importantly, the, the consideration of legislation is done in a way where there's really no consideration. No deep thought goes up to it. Committees have got 50, 50 to 80 members in them, and by the time each member gets his five minutes, the week is gone. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're in serious, serious trouble. We have a system that simply has ceased to work. And one of the surprising things is the Senate has now become a, the legislative body. The House is incapable of legislating. And, and, and we have members that, that know nothing whatsoever about the rules. They know none of the legislative history. They know none of the history of the country. And, and, and it appears very strongly that they really don't give a damn about those matters. With the result that the country is being hurt with all the nonsense that goes on here and the refusal to make the system work. Well, it's part of the problem in, in the system, you know, looking back at your career, uh, over the 58 years, you seem to have been changing districts every 10 years and it's been moving further west outside of originally Detroit. Is redistricting hampering part of Congress's ability to operate? Yes and no. Uh, I think the kind of bad members that we have here that disregard their responsibilities would come under a different system of redistricting. But the harsh fact of the matter is that redistricting has been, however, a very serious problem uh, in the South and in other places too. Districts have all become identical in terms of characters. They're absolutely, uh, everybody in that district is the same. It's called packing, where you pack the minorities into a few districts, go to the South and you'll see. Full, full of solid black districts, full of solid white districts, and they don't talk to each other. There's no compromise. That's why the Senate can work together because they represent a broad base of Americans. In the House, we don't. And the result, you see, we're incapable of legislating and we're not answerable to anybody when we go home because everybody agrees with us. Bob Lines. Mr. Chairman, um, would the answer uh, to that question, that problem that you have just identified, which I agree with completely, is the solution to that to take redistricting out of the hands of the state legislatures and do what several states have begun to move toward, commissions of senior, uh, like former governors and Supreme Court members who develop compact and contiguous districts, don't break up, don't break up communities, and districts don't end up being 65-35, but you get districts, let's say, that are more like 55-45, so a member, someone running for office, has got to appeal to more than just his best friends in order to get elected. Well, you see, Bob, you're absolutely right on that. Your old boss and my dear friend, uh, Bud Brown was in here not long back, and we talked about it. the very thing that we're talking about. 
The harsh fact of the matter is, it doesn't make a difference who does it, as long as it's done differently. California, which does some odd things from time to time, uh, has <laughs> seen fit to set up a new kind of ballot. Everybody says, oh, this is going to make all kinds of changes. Well, it did, but it never made, it never made the changes they thought. And the, the districts are much more representative. And one of the problems is that uh, there are probably less than 40 districts in this Congress that, that would move with a significant change in public attitude. And the result is that things go on the same. And in Michigan, we have we elect Democratic senators, Democratic governors, and Democratic presidents. And guess what? We elect overwhelmingly Republican Senate and House back home. But we also find that, that uh, we elect five out of 14 members of Congress. Now, this is not an argument for electing Democrats or electing Republicans. It's just simply a, a, a statement that we have become so adroit with computers and all the new technologies in setting up districts that are, are, are one party and that favors a guy, uh, a particular political party who runs, that, that there is no debate, no discussion, and that really an election doesn't have any meaning at all. It's a primary. And one of the evils that, that's attended by this is a lot of my Republican colleagues, and there's plenty of decent Republicans around here, um, are told if they vote for certain things that really are, are in the broad overall interest, they're going to have a, a primary financed by the cooks and by other people of vast resources. Of course, the Supreme Court has said that you can spend any damn amount of money now you want on politics, don't have to identify who does it or why or anything else throughout most of the campaign reforms that we put in place. So now that this place is, is just literally up for sale. Yeah. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to uh, move into, into a kind of a historical area a little bit. We can get back to some of these issues in a minute. You've been here 58 years. 57. 57 no. years. Well, you'll be here 58. Uh, <laughs> uh, if the Lord says yes. And, and I have a number of questions to ask along that. First of all, who in your judgment was the greatest speaker you served with? Raven. Raven. That doesn't surprise me. And right, and right behind you, John McCormick. John McCormick. Well, we were talking earlier, and I said Rayburn, and Bob said McCormick. So, <laughs> well, you're both right. And 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 another 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 great one was Chip O'Neill. Yes. And, and and but they played by the old rules, the way they were played by in, in the days of Jefferson and the others, so that they understood that the speaker presides; he doesn't rule. And that the and that everybody, Al, you remember when I got to be chairman of this committee? Well, I want to see the parliamentarian, and I asked him, I asked him, I said, "What am I going to do to be a good chairman?" Because to be perfectly truthful, I'm scared death. And I said, "What do I do about that?" He said, "Well, there's two things. First, you got to be fair, and second, you got to be, you've got to appear fair." And he said, "You've got to give." 
the minority an opportunity to be heard. And you've got to give the majority an opportunity to work their will. And if those things are properly mixed, we'll do, we'll legislate well, because we'll hear from everybody, the right, the left, in between. And if you'll remember, and Bob, you'll remember this too, when you were on committee staff, you'll recall that we would always hear from everybody. And the legislation that came out of the committee would pass overwhelmingly because we worked together. And it was better legislation because everybody was heard and because everybody participated. I, I remember when I first joined the committee uh, and you were first chairman of the committee, Jim Broyhill was the ranking Republican on the committee, uh, a nice Southern gentleman from North Carolina. North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, the two of you had some real tussles on issues on which you disagreed, but you also worked well together when that, uh, when that fit the, the occasion. Well, more importantly than now, we knew we had to work together in the public interest. And Brian used to come to me and complain that people were saying that his first name was Dingle because there were so many Dingle Broyhill bills, <laughs> so many Dingle Broyhill amendments that were moving through. And Bud Brown, who was Bob's great friend, and my also great friend, came to me one day and after we'd had a particular nasty series of fights, he was the far right and I was the far left said to me, you know, Johnny said, my wife is talking about divorcing me and she's going to lay you in as a, uh, as, as, as a participant in the divorce. She said, she's going to call you a correspondent. I said, why? She said, you're spending, she, she said, I'm spending so much time with you and so little time with her. <laughs> and, and, and what we always did was we always had great friendships across the aisles between our subcommittee chairman and our chairman of subcommittees and our chairman of full committees and the ranking members. And that was the way it should be. There should be respect and affection. And everybody should understand we've all got rights that have got to be protected here. And those rights are really not our rights as members of Congress. Those are the rights of the people out there that we serve. So I always tell the new members, I say, look, you're the full equal of everybody else around here. You're no better, no worse. And you remember that. You insist on that because that's important for you to be able to serve the people that you represent. Let me ask you one more kind of historical question. Aside from the speakers, uh, well, let me put it this way. When I, when I first arrived here in 1978, I, was, I wondered, seriously, I wondered, are, are there any giants left? I remembered uh, Sam Rayburn. I remembered... You know, some names like that, but I just didn't know whether there were any giants. Well, I, I found at least two. You were one, uh, and I think by far the, the, the greatest giant. Uh, and the other was probably Ross Tinkowski. Uh People who could get things done and, uh, and, 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 and work across the aisle. But of all of the people you have worked with over your 57 years, uh, who comes to mind as some of the really good members that you worked with? Well, you were one. Bud Brown was one. Uh, Roy Hill. 
wonderful man. Uh, a little guy by the name of Gross on the Republican side. He used to drive drive uh, McCormick and and Raver out of their gourds <laughs> by making them trouble. But he made him he made him he made him test things out. He became the ranking member on one of my on a subcommittee I ran. Everybody said, Oh, this is going to be terrible. I said, Hell no, it's not going to be terrible. I'm going to have a harder job of convincing him. But if I'm convinced him, I'm not going to have to worry about anything on the right because he's a fair and a decent man. And I had all kinds of guys like that. Sylvia O'Connor was another one. And, and, and there were all kinds of members. And they were always, you know, the guys that get the headlines. The headline grabbers are not necessarily always the best guys around here. And I keep trying to tell people, you know, I, I've had a wonderful I'm grateful for it. But I'm just a very ordinary guy who's had an extraordinary job and who played by the rules and who tried to be fair and decent. And I think anybody who comes to this place and tries to do those things will be a success and will be remembered well. That's why you're remembered well. Well, Mr. Chairman, along those lines, uh, how influential was your father in you, in forming or shaping the way that you looked at being a member of Congress? Well, he was, of course, a very profound influence in my life. He was a dean of the Michigan delegation. He was a real leader. He was one of the philosophers of the New Deal. Of the New Deal. He was one of the authors of Social Security. He was the author of Medicare. He was author of most of the labor legislation in the New Deal, which fixed it so that a working man could belong to a union. Before that, it was illegal per se for a guy to belong to a union and to um, bargain over wages, working conditions, and funding. And before Dad, it, to to have to to be a member of the union, you had to wear your union button on the back of your lapels or underneath your cap, and 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 then then you could. Well, that created the middle class. The unions got us the things that we have today. And they stood for things like education of everybody, health and health care. They were able always, the powerful unions, to get what they needed for their members. But they understood they had to do more for the people. So the, he, those were things he was very, very proud of. One of the things he was always interested in was conservation and how we're going to save some of the things that we treasure that make this country such a wonderful place to live. Those were things that he loved, and things that meant something to him. I, you, you rarely hear that. And one of the things that I remember about this when I was a young fellow was they would describe a member of Congress two ways. They would say he is sincere. That meant that he was an honest, decent man, that he was trying to serve the people that he represented. And, and, and so that man would have great respect in almost anything he did because they knew that he was sincere. That meant a lot. Then they'd say he is insincere. And quite frankly, all you got to do is look around here and see what insincerity is, what it means to the House and to the country by the behavior of some of these clowns that we have in this place. And, and the result of that is that, that the country is hurt by that. And so if they said he seemed sincere, that just made him a guy that you were not going to 
respect and that you were not going to follow and you were not going to work with because he didn't have the interest of the country at heart. Now that's all gone behind us. I don't hear that. Now I used to hear some other words that were important. Social justice. How we see to it that this country is fair and decent. How we take care of the least of us. And Dad used to always be concerned. How do we see to it that a guy who has no hope and no help gets a decent way of making it? Not that you come to the Congress with throw and throw goodies around or that you're going you're to take care of all these people that, that these are just throwaways or a bunch of welfare queens. We don't do that. And, and, and we audit our program, see to it that this kind of rascality doesn't go on. But to just see to it that the least of us had a basically decent existence. And that was viewed as something that was really important. Well, you don't hear that word anymore. And you have, you basically followed those issues that you just named that your father, like you've introduced the, the healthcare, a health care bill every uh, term you've been in Congress. I did. And I want to follow up on that, Congressman Al, if, if I can. You know, following in those. You also worked on your, on your salmon out there in the West, too. He <laughs> <laughs> said, I came and I said, Can you help me with this little thing that is a regional issue? And he said, he said Yes, I, I will. But it's going to cost you a lot of fish. <laughs> well, it, was, it was that you I told that. The, the electric utilities came in and said, we're having trouble getting ourselves licensed on the, on the dams because their dams were, their dam permits were expiring after 50 years. I said, fellas, you've come to the right place. We're going to help you, but you're going to buy a lot of fish. And, and we did. We restored the salmon in the west. The salmon are summer coming back a little bit. In the east, we have all kinds of returns on fishery that we didn't have before. So these things are doable if somebody understands we have a broader duty than just our particular concern. And we can look past our own particular concerns and we can protect values other than what might be our particular values, which is one of the reasons it's so important that we have a lot of differing views represented in place. Well, if you didn't tell me I had to buy a lot of fish, no, I, didn't. I wonder why I bought so much many fish. <laughs> <laughs> you stole a lot of fish. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Hey, Mr. Chairman is one of the primary authors of the Affordable Care Act, following in your father's legacy of promoting universal health care. It seems that Americans forget that at one time this was a bipartisan issue. I go back to the days when uh, Ted Kennedy, yourself, and President Nixon looked at the uh, possible bipartisan solution back during the Nixon administration. Why have we lost sight of the fact that at one time we all agreed? And is it a matter of we just didn't look at it, or has it become too bipartisan since then? Well, there's a place drifts, solicitations for money. There's all kinds of disregard for those kinds of values. But one of the problems you have in this place now is that Nixon could never be elected as a Republican. He's, he really, quite frankly, is too decent for a lot of these 
tea baggers. And, 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 and Goldwater, same thing. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if what Reagan would have the same problems today, too. And so, the, one interesting thing, this health care bill is basically not a democratic bill. Most people don't realize that the mandate, Mitt Romney, Republican candidate for president, he was the guy who pushed it up in, up in Massachusetts. They also forget that the basic idea came from Bob Dole, who was the Republican minority leader, or majority leader, or minority leader in the Senate. And they don't remember that Chafee from Rhode Island, who's a progressive Republican, came up with the same idea. And then most of those ideas were, have been hanging around the Senate for a long time. And so the Democrats, to get something done, figured, well, this will work better than just more wrangling about single pair. I still think. Single pair is the way to go. But the harsh, unfortunate matter is we have to legislate and solve some of these damnable national problems. And so uh, the bill was really basically a, a, a Republican bill. Nixon wrote a pretty good health insurance bill. And, and, and he ran into other troubles because he had other faults, but his, his health insurance bill was not a bad one. And it's surprisingly so that I think almost every president except Hoover and Coolidge since Teddy Roosevelt started in 1912 pushed a program of national health insurance. Mm -hmm. And Bismarck pushed it in Germany. Is King Edward VII in, in, in Britain. Is, is the Affordable Care Act now, do you see, being, is it being held hostage by the fiscal debate and by the debt limit ceiling? Is it it just seems like we can't separate it. Anytime they bring up debt limit, they bring in a, a, the ACA. If you talk about uh, the budget, they bring up the Affordable Care Act. Is well, it being held hostage? What they're trying to do is to hold this administration hostage for what they want. And, and usually it's what they want in a particular set of circumstances. This is, uh, health care was not the cause for, um, quite frankly, holding up the administration by the right wing. That, that changes according to the moment and according to their whim. But the, but the harsh fact of the matter is, when they decide they don't like something, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna try and accomplish two purposes. Although staff member of mine used to call it selling the same horse twice. Uh, what they do is, is they they say, well, you can't do this unless you do that. And both of which things are repugnant. And, but they appeal to their, their uniform Republican districts. So that goes out and everybody says, well, hallelujah, this is what we're going to do. Uh, frankly, this is baloney. I don't think they'll succeed, but they're really trying. And the, the appalling thing is they're holding the whole country hostage to this nonsense about getting rid of the health care bill, which largely now is in place. Uh, they, can't, they can't deny you insurance because of pre-existing conditions. They can't cancel your policy because of health care. The whole of our patient's bill of rights is now, is now in law. Kid stays on his parents' policy till he's 26. Um, and and uh, there are all kinds of benefits, including 
reasonable constraints on extortionate billing by insurance companies. Those are already in place, and there are going to be more things, including including more expansions of the protection of the citizen against uh, pre-existing conditions, and 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 there actually are constraints on excessive charges by insurance companies. So a lot of this baloney that you're hearing from people out there who are saying, oh, this is, the cost of my insurance is going up, that's malarkey, that's not true. Uh, my wife was on TV with uh, a news band who said, oh, is insurance policy going up? I said, Deb, I wish I'd have been there because I'd feel the skin off on that one. <laughs> well, we, we've got a couple more minutes uh, here, Mr. Chairman, in this segment. Uh, uh, one, one question I have, you brought up your, your, your wife, Sabby. Has she been part of the energy that's kept you motivated in staying in Congress and continuing to serve the people of uh, Michigan's 12th District? Well, if, if, if you ever get really exposed to Deborah, you'll see just pure energy at work. Yeah, she's a fabulous woman. She's the best friend, best partner, best, best thing ever happened. She's, and she's a wall of fire. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. One last question real quick, Mr. Chairman, and, and we've got to finish this segment. Um, when we look back 100 years from now, what do you expect the history books will write about Chairman John Dingell? They will have carefully forgotten me. <laughs> I and, doubt that. And, and, and it really doesn't matter. They're, they're already now talking about, if there was a poll taken in England about Winston Churchill, the tremendous number of people thought he was a rock star. So one of the one of the great giants of the 20th century is viewed as a rock star. I never never did anything that's going to match even in a small way what that man did. So I I I want to look back when I put my feet up for the last time and say, well, this is it, and and just say, you know, I did what the people wanted done. I I I bore faith with those I served, and the country and my district and the individual people are better because of what I did. And if, that's, if they're able to think that for 10, 20 years, that'll be all I ask. Chairman John Dingell, the Dean of the House of Representatives, thank you very much for joining us here on Backroom Politics. Thank you, my friend. And we're back here live at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, you just heard an exclusive interview with the Dean of the House uh, representing Michigan's 12th Congressional District, the Chairman John Dingell. Uh, you know, Bob, very blunt thoughts, very blunt comments from the Chairman in that I, I think the one thing that stands out, and we pre-recorded that interview, even today he still says that the, the only branch in government right now is the Senate, they're the only ones governing right now. The House is, quote-unquote, incapable of doing so. That's a huge indictment by the Dean of the House on his own organization, Bob. And, and don't you think that hurts the heck out of him? I mean, he feels probably as bad as the Speaker does in the fact that it's nothing works. The, con the House of Representatives is fundamentally dysfunctional. It, they can't work. It's not the Speaker's fault. It's not the Chairman's fault. It's the fault of all these people who believe so hard in what they think is the only fair truth 
that they're willing to go and say the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different result, and it isn't going to change. Alan Moore, what stood out? Uh, what stood out for you in that interview? What, what caught your eye? You know, I think what caught my eye was the the, the fact that that in his reflection on how things used to be, there was this missing element of what went wrong in Washington in which the House and the Senate and the White House over a period of years were, if you will, complicit in creating this economic meltdown in 2007 and 2008 that changed everything. And when one wants to go back to how things used to be of getting along, one can't ignore the fact that the old getting along contributed in some important ways to breakdowns in the system that cost so many so much. Um, And that's what led the Tea Party. That's what feeds uh, public anger and distress with government, a pox on all their houses, and so on. I think that that it's going to be a long time before the public is going to say, yeah, we trust those guys. You guys go to it, make it happen. Uh, we're putting our fates in your hands. Um, I don't, ex- you know, I, I, it's not a criticism, but that was what I was r- reflecting upon, um, that the that the old way of coming together and finding compromise and common ground helped accidentally and, and if you will, uh, inadvertently uh, uh, contribute to the, to the economic distress we've been suffering now for six, years, six seven years. Right. Uh, the, go ahead. The thing, go. The, the thing that struck me, and, I, and, and part, partly because I'm a former uh, House staffer, was when he talked about the disintegration of the of the committee system, whereas whereas policy emanates now out of the speaker's office, and that was true under Nancy Pelosi. It's probably true under John Boehner as well. But it is really sad when when you see the if there is a diminution of the of the ability of the committee system to produce legislation because there's no way there's no way that the speaker's office of either party you know can produce. Uh, the sort of in-depth consideration to legislation that you can do when you have a percolate-up process uh, through the committee system. And I, I, I think that is that is a that is a, that is an indictment. Well, Governor Olson, you know, on that fact, it, it's very clear that, and I'm going to paraphrase that the, the committee system has been neutered, even going back to the creation of the Hastert rule. Do you agree with the, with the chairman that uh, that the the committee system has in fact been neutered. In some it's, it's been it's been significantly limited, uh, because I think policy initiatives come from are now top down as opposed to percolate up, and and it it, it reduces the authority and the and the uh, and the uh, the role of the, of the respective committee chairs and the committee ranking uh, minority uh, leaders. And, and I think that that's been a, that's been a real loss. I, mean, I, w- I want to th- I want to thank Chairman John Dingle and his staff for for giving us this exclusive interview. It, that will obviously be on our website 
in our uh, archives, so you can listen to it at any time. I urge everybody listening to listen to that because, I mean, when you talk about somebody who knows how the House and how government operates, no better than Chairman John Dingle. Bob Hines? John Dingle is one of the most amazing men I've ever known. Uh, he is a fabulous legislator. He was a great chairman. And uh, in his committee, it always worked out that they found common ground because he knew what he needed to get. He was always willing to work with the Republicans, but he always was going to get what the Democrats needed to get. He was the kind of legislator that always found a solution to the problem. And today, as, uh, as uh, Mark just said, the speakers and the leadership are taking away the, the opportunity for the members themselves within the committees to do the, to work, of the, to do the work of the House. Right. Um, you know, real quickly, we've got breaking news uh, coming out of New York. Uh, it looks like the Fitch Credit Rating Group uh, has just announced that they are putting a watch towards negative outlook on the American government and the American bond right now. That is a very substantial uh, development in this budget crisis and debt limit ceiling talks. Uh, Governor Olson, how important of a factor is that, and should Congress be looking at that as, hey, wake up and smell the coffee? We will know that it... The, there's a wisdom in the markets. If, if there is value in it, the markets will respond. Uh, the, in, in many, many cases, we've sort of discounted the, the, what the wisdom of the markets, the markets really work. I think we'll know tomorrow at this time the extent that, that, that it makes a difference. But we still have to wait is, for Asia and Europe markets that's right. to deal with it, it as well. Yeah, on, the other, on the other side of the international date line, so that's where it starts, and it'll, it'll roll around back to us by this time tomorrow. Uh, but I but I suspect it's going to make a difference because oh because there still is there still is integrity and there still is credibility in the rating agencies. Does that does that drive the Fed? Hey, hey Justin. Yeah, go ahead, Alan. No, yeah, I, I was I, I was rem remembering uh, uh, a little uh, a year ago when when uh, what was it two now? Gosh, uh, when. One of the when one of the credit agencies that uh, low, lowered their rating on U.S. bonds, and everybody said, "Oh my God, this is the worst possible thing. This is going to uh, be the seeds of destru destruction," or, or words to that effect. And the rest of the world said, "Triple A, double A. We still would rather put our money in America." Uh, and they did. Now, that doesn't speak to, to the, the, the question that the governor made earlier in, in, earlier today about uh, a slight uptick in interest rates. And every time you have an uptick in interest uh, costs that the government has to pay, that has economic effects, and it lingers for a period of time. Um, but uh, as he says, uh, the markets, you know, in the aggregate, is pretty smart. We'll watch. Uh, my only point is that even if even if there is uh, uh, a redu a slight reduction in the rating, it doesn't automatically mean that we're uh, on the way to hell in a handbasket the way we feared uh, the last time, and it didn't happen. 
Governor Olson. Important distinction between credit flows globally. Uh, I think it will not change fundamentally uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, debt instrument vis-a-vis -vis debt instruments to the rest of the world. But, I, but the question will be whether it affects the cost. And that will have an impact on, on the U.S. Does, is, is the Fed concerned right. about this, this latest revelation coming out of New York? Uh, the, the Fed will measure it in this sense, that it will immediately impact discretionary spending. It will? Yes, it will, okay. because it, it's the same as an excise tax. D does, does the Fed hold firm on either maintaining or even possibly lowering a little bit my, the my, uh, interest my, rates? My guess, and it's strictly a guess, is that one of the reasons that the, the Fed held firm the last time is because of the uncertainty of, of, of what would happen uh, with, with the with the Congress with respect to the debt issue. Educated guess, you think the Fed will hold, hold firm right now where it currently stands, so it will maintain the status quo? Well, the, the, it depends on what you're referring to. If you're talking about interest rates, they've already promised that they're going to stand, uh, that they're going to be in the status quo until 2015. The question is when they start signaling a, re a reduction in the rate of payments uh, on the QE3. Okay. Denise Kraft. And just, I just want to keep reminding people, Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. The majority of the retail stores make their money off of Christmas. January, February, they're always slow. When you start moving into October, November, and December is when they make their money. All of a sudden, we have the possibility that they're about to punt this to December 15th, January 15th. I don't care. It's equally as harmful. Now we have a, a, a credit rating that is saying, eh, a little concerned about what the United yep. States is going to do. So, folks, when you go out and you go to Walmart and you go to Target to buy your Barbies and your Legos and your G.I. Joes and you put it on your credit card, what's about to happen is that your interest rate is going to go up. So it's not actually going to be $9.99 because you're not going to, you know, some people may not be able to pay on time. You're about, your interest rate is going to go up. So instead of being $9.99, maybe $12.99. Good well. So, you know, it's going to be more expensive. It's a direct impact to your wallet, which is why you need to go, and I'm going to be very blatant about this, go talk to your member of Congress and they settle it. We've well, got to stop. Going back to the Fed for a second, uh, Governor Olson, last week the President announced his new selection uh, for Chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, what are your thoughts on this selection? An enormously capable person, Janet Yellen. Uh, she she has a tremendous she she is an intellectual giant. Uh, if she had dessert that day, she probably weighs 90 pounds. So physically, she's not a she, uh, she's not a giant, but intellectually she is. But she's also a very collegial person. She's well respected within the FOMC, and she leads with two things. She leads with the power of her intellect and the depth of of her of her analysis. And and so and she will be she will be a, you have to have somebody there that, that can bring about a consensus. Uh, Greenspan is underrated for that. Bernanke is appropriately rated for that. She will be in that same. Well, you bring up Greenspan and and Bernanke. I mean, those are very big shoes to follow in uh, for Janet Yellen. She obviously has a capability internationally. Is is her reputation that solid She's, on the level of maybe a Christine she, Lagarde? Uh, oh yes, oh, oh yes. In fact, for a longer period of time, because uh, because you remember she was a, she was the Fed governor for years. Right. Uh, she was a, a chair of the uh, of the San Francisco Fed for many years, president actually, and because of the San Francisco Fed, a lot of time 
particularly in, in the Pacific Rim, but as the vice chair. Uh, the vice chair often sits in for the chair on international issues. So she is, she is very well respected internationally. In international markets, you think, will react favorably? Yeah. International markets already have reacted Very good, favorably. very good. Uh, hey, kids, it's uh, now time for my favorite part of the show, uh, Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the latest buzz, innuendo, rumor going around the Beltway, outside the Beltway, anything dealing with politics. Uh, Bob Hines, tell me a story. Uh, up in Grand Rapids, there's a congressman, uh, Justin uh, Amish. Amish. And, Amosh. Uh, Amosh. And he is very, very conservative. He's a Tea Party guy. He has been con- he has been in Congress. I think this is his uh, Sec- second ter- second second term. I, I think his second term. Uh, his uh, his Grand Rapids is a relatively conservative city. It's a very old city. That's got it's got a lot of big companies like Amway and Steelcase uh, located there. And they they the uh, the leadership of the business community is very strong. They spent a lot of money renovating the city, done a marvelous job. They are all, except for one or two executives, all have come out saying they are going to support a candidate who has just announced, a Republican candidate, to take on Amish in the primary because they are sick and tired of somebody who is so right-wing that they can't see him with a telescope. It's a very good move, and I hope there are other places in the country that will see the same thing. The way to tell your congressman, if he's too crazy, that you don't like him, is to find somebody else. They're doing so in Grand Rapids, and I congratulate them. Wow, good story. Uh, Denise Krep, tell me a story. Hello, D.C. So, (laughs) I'm going to say that. Uh, in 2016, DC United is going to be leaving and hopefully going to its own stadium down at Buzzards Point, which means that they have. Well, you got to fill out for the rest of America that doesn't understand what Buzzards uh, Point is. Buzzards Point is another location in DC. Now, the question, and we're all asking for, is what happens to RK Stadium? RK Stadium used to be the home of the Washington uh, and uh, the football team. And the baseball team. And the baseball team. It was. It was for the Senators. Washington, the Washington, D.C. government is going to be issuing a request for proposals in the next couple of weeks to figure out what they're going to do with that piece of property. There's been talk about having it to be part of the Olympic proposal, bringing back the football team and others. So stand by and let, let's see what happens with our, uh, with our neighborhood here in Washington, D.C. Are we going to have the football team come back or are we going to have other things occur in the area? So, Got one word yeah. for you, condos. Uh, <laughs> Governor Olson, you have a story to tell. Tell me a story. Well, I do, and, and it'll, it will uh, it will factor off of Bob Hines' comments. I, I go back to the uh, to, to Newt Gingrich's contract with America, and I remember I was at that time I was in the banking industry, uh, and I was uh, was advocating legislation on behalf of the banking industry, and I said at that time. If you think that there is a link between the government, the, the, the business world's agenda and contract with America, read it again, because there isn't. And I think we are now seeing that that difference that, has, that is well-organized and well-funded is taking a hard look at the Republican Party and so, so, so we're going we're to measure you independently as opposed to collectively. And I think that that could change the dynamic. Here, here. Yeah. Carl Dubin, tell me a story, if it's in this decade. 
Headlines again, taking um, books and all kinds of information off the uh, computer. In 1976, Paul Sarbanes and I ran back and forth between Baltimore and Washington in his primary campaign. And he would get on the phone and he would speak to his chief of staff and he would talk in Greek. So about two weeks after one of the episodes, I got a call. Uh, you have someone to do. Um, it says, uh, there's someone in your car talking Greek. Is it you? I said, no, it's not. He says, well, can you tell me who it is? And I said, yes, it's Congressman Paul Sarbanes talking to his chief of staff either in Washington or Baltimore. Oh, really? Well, thank you very much. So Paul and I and his wife were talking after this incident, and we figured that you know we were on uh, <clears throat> 95 and we were on the Baltimore Washington Expressway, and somebody at NSA, we believe, somebody at NSA picked this up, calls the, the service and says, find out what's going on there. They're talking Greek, and we want to find out who it is. Yeah. I never heard from him again. Wow. <laughs> Alan Moore in two minutes. Great story. Yeah, and Alan Moore, yeah. tell, me, tell me a story. One of, one of the issues uh, that, that's still hanging up uh, uh, the Obamacare discussion is the so-called car, sweetheart carve-out for members of Congress. Um, and, and, and to remind you what happened is they were doing Obamacare in the Senate. Uh, the proposal came forward that if we're going to force lots of Americans to go buy insurance on a so-called exchange, let's make members of Congress and their immediate staffs do the same thing. And it was kind of hard to vote against, so it passed. And I think it, what, what happens in cases like that is members say, well, we'll fix this, and, but it later. And then suddenly the Obamacare got more and more controversial. What it has morphed into is a question of whether the employer, the federal government, the U.S. Senate, the House of Representatives, can contribute to the cost of health care the way it has always done, the way most large employers do. The so-called sweet, sweetheart deal and fix is simply to make it clear that, yes, you still have to buy insurance on one of these exchanges, but, yes, your employer will still be able to pay around three-fourths of the total cost. That's what's being called a sweetheart deal. The issue is not yet dead, but the solution that I see is they will say, members of Congress, make your own decision out of your own budget whether you want to pay for uh, a, a portion of the cost out of your individual budget. And that will force every member to put... Uh, his or her money where their mouth is. Great story. Uh, hey, my story is uh, th over the weekend there was a veterans rally that occurred here in Washington, D.C. on the mall, National Mall. And it was led by Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Mike Lee, and uh, former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. 
What disturbs me about this, and I am a noted Republican and a self-proclaimed Maple Leaf Republican, I will tell you that seeing Mike Lee and Ted Cruz stand up there and say, we're not going to hold veterans hostage, we're not going to allow veterans to be held hostage in front of the World War II Memorial is not only condescending to veterans, it is absolutely incorrigibly insulting to every American out there. This guy is a circus clown with his sidekick, Mike Lee. I have never talked ill of any member of Congress. I have all due respect for the office. I am here to tell you for the first time in my 20 years in politics, I am calling outright Senator Ted Cruz a dangerous circus clown that is dangerous and impactful to the Republican Party. He and Mike Lee have not yet once put out one solution to this fiscal crisis. It is rhetoric. It is demagoguery. He needs to go to the people in Texas, vote this clown out of office. He needs to go. To the people in Utah, Mike Lee is just as big a circus clown. Vote him out of office. Bring back Senator Bennett. That's my story. God, I feel better now. Bob Hines, real quick. <laughs> I'd like to say that Justin is always a very calm and ind- quiet individual. I am glad to see him encouraging voters to vote for people who want to find solutions. And by the way, poll, we'll talk about that next week, a majority of Americans are moderates. They want compromise. They are moderate in the social issues. They are moderate in fiscal spending. Let the moderates come out. If you're a moderate out there, you are just killing yourself if you are not out there voting and participating in the government process. Don't let the right-wing fringe and the left-wing fringe fringe dominate the way you're governed, people. Come on, wake up, America. God almighty, it's amazing. And on behalf of Bob Hines, uh, Denise Krepp, Carl Tuvin, out in California, our friend Alan Moore, and a special thanks to Governor Mark Olson, former Federal uh, Reserve Bank Governor. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope you had a good time with us, Mark. I had a wonderful time. It was Hope, a pleasure being here. Thanks for the invite. Hope you'll join us again at some to. point. Love Absolutely. To. Folks, we'll be back live here from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob? Boy, oh boy, isn't this the place to be? Absolutely. We'll be back live on Blog Talk Radio next week. Have a great week, America. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.